This episode is brought to you by Berkland Associates. Okay, so your company is growing fast. Stuff's moving a thousand miles a minute. It's exciting, but all that speed without the right systems in place can hurt you at scale. Enter Berkland Associates. Fractional CFOs, bookkeepers, tax and people ops experts, Berkland helps you build the right systems that can keep up with your growth and can handle all the finance, accounting, tax, and hiring services that consumer startups need to scale. From ensuring your fundamentals are sound to making sure you're prepared for the next funding round, Berkland Associates gets consumer startups. For more information, head to berklandassociates.com and you can check out their toolkits for startups as well. Link is in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Skillful. Working in tech is exciting, fast-paced, and challenging, but sometimes getting your foot in the door can be tough. Skillful runs online immersive programs that help people launch and accelerate their careers in business roles in tech, like strategy and ops, product, strategic finance, and growth. In the program, participants learn directly from mentors who work at companies like Netflix, Uber, Shopify, DoorDash, and Instacart. Grads go on to work in biz ops, product, and growth at high-growth startups through scale-up companies like Scribed, Otter, DoorDash, Instacart, TikTok, and Wealthsimple. You can learn more and apply at joinskillful.com. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Michael Marksberry, co-founder and CEO of Oros. Oros produces award-winning apparel with their patented solar core insulation. It's the warmest zero bulk gear. And in Michael's words, they science the shit out of everything when it comes to outdoor apparel and when it comes to making you warm. This was such a fun chat about how he's building this incredible brand that uses space technology to build their product. Without further ado, here's Michael. Michael, thank you so much for joining me this morning. How are you doing? I'm great, Mike. Uh, so much fun to be with you. Oh, it's really great. Thanks again for uh, for your time. Really excited to to jump in here. So let's start from the very beginning. What was your attraction to space? What kid doesn't want to be an astronaut when they grow up, right? Um, I certainly had that that desire. But for me, it really all started um, after I climbed this mountain in the Northeast Swiss Alps. And I looked like the Michelin man. And I came back to the US. And when I was in college, I was a science geek and I was working in a lab and uh, doing research. And I got really lucky. And through that research, I ended up getting a, a scholarship created by the uh, Mercury 7 astronauts, uh, which was super cool. And that's really when my you know affinity for space started. And that's also when I learned about this, this NASA technology that uh, we now use in, in all of our products today. So walk me through once you got that scholarship and how 
maybe you nurtured or developed a relationship with NASA? <laughs> you know, so the relationship we, we developed at first was with this entity that gave us the scholarship, the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. That was first. And then, you know, we learned about this aerogel technology, which, you know, NASA said was the lowest thermal conductive solid in existence. A bunch of fancy words, meaning it's the best insulation in the universe. And like they're using this stuff to insulate space shuttles and the Mars rovers and, you know, all this stuff in space. And space is negative 455 degrees Fahrenheit. Like it's, it's, it's pretty cold. And so I'm looking back on this, you know, experience that I had where I looked like the Michelin man on top of this mountain and thinking like, and the jacket I was wearing was like insulated with like, I don't know, animal byproducts, like goose down stuff we've been using for hundreds to thousands of years. And I thought like, how come we're not using this incredible space tech? Like it would solve this problem I had where I looked like the, the Michelin man on top of the mountain. Right. And so that, that, uh, that launched this, this company, this idea with aerogel and, um, that original aerogel tech long since expired from an IP perspective, like it was created in the 1930s. And so we didn't, we didn't really have a formal relationship with NASA at that point. Uh, but with this new technology that we'll be coming out with that we can talk more about later, uh, we had to, we had to license some, some intellectual property from NASA and uh, develop some uh, cool relationships along the way. Um, in, be in between that new tech and today, uh, we ended up uh, doing some really cool collaborations with a couple really famous astronauts and releasing some awesome uh, NASA, Oros NASA jackets that are super cool. That's awesome. That's that's super cool. So I guess for your initial products and maybe with the initial idea of using aerogel for in jackets, since there is no, the IP has expired since it was developed in, in the 30s, there's no patents on it that are still viable. Why haven't other other companies thought to use aerogel and jackets, do you think? Awesome question. Background, right? Like, uh, I remember, you know, I climbed the mountain, looked like the Michelin man, thought like, this is surreal. There's got to be a better way to like stay warm without the bulk. Came back to the U.S., got that scholarship for the Mercury 7 astronauts. And, and through that scholarship, learned about aerogel, was so excited that, oh my gosh, like here's a solution to this problem I had when I was on this mountain. And uh, I told my friend about it. I told Rith, uh, Rithik Vena, now co-founder and COO, right before an organic chemistry exam. I was like, dude, I got this awesome idea. I want to put this aerogel stuff in this jacket. And, and he got super excited. And we took the exam and like immediately ordered our first sample of aerogel. By the way, I beat him on that exam. So that's, that's important. So we, we got the first sample of aerogel. And I, uh, we put it in our hands and it just shattered into a thousand little pieces. And so it became evidently clear why this tech that's been around since like the 1930s hasn't really been used in anything. And the problem was this aerogel stuff was super brittle. Uh, the, the aerogel base matrix is an amorphous silica. So same stuff that's in like glass and sand and, and all that stuff. And, and aerogels, depending on how you make it, roughly like 98, 99% air. So there's not a whole lot of structure there. And relative to its, its weight, uh, it can hold a lot of weight itself. Relative to its mass, it can hold a lot of weight. But the problem is uh, it can't really hold a lot of weight and just kind of shatter. So we're like, oh my gosh, like this stuff would never work in apparel where you need flexibility, mobility, and you know, all those things. And, and so we spent the remainder of our collegiate careers, our sophomore years to our senior years, just like eerily obsessed with this idea. Like, how do you take 
the best insulation that this world's ever created and just make it not brittle so that you can put it in apparel. That became our passion project. And we looked at the industry, the, the outerwear industry and the outdoor industry and saw like whether it was footbeds, uh, like, like insoles and shoes or uh, soft coolers. Think like, you know, everyone knows like the hard coolers, right? But then there's the squishy soft coolers as well, like lunch boxes and stuff like that. Uh, uh, um, and then a series of other applications as well, like sleeping pads and, and all these different products, they were using uh, a form of foam, generally closed cell, sometimes open cell, in these products uh, to provide insulation. And that foam was super flexible and super durable and had a lot of structure. So we thought like, oh my gosh, if you could combine aerogel, which is flexible, but amazing insulation with this foam, which also is good insulation, but is incredibly flexible and durable, you could have an amazing product. You could have a flexible, durable aerogel composite. And that created SolarCore, which is what's in all of our products today. And we're fortunate to have it patented and and all that fun stuff. But um, that's how we created a flexible, durable uh, aerogel composite. So it was combining new methods that haven't been, or or new ingredients that have never been uh, used in apparel, which is aerogel, but then as well as maybe traditional ingredients as well using foam. Um, and that was really like the the, the secret that that became uh, solar core. Totally, absolutely. And it, it turned out it actually worked. It's been tested against, um, to date, over 250 other insulations and it's beaten every single one of them from a, a, just a pure warmth perspective, a thermal insulation perspective, which is great. Like it's warmer, but what makes it cool is it solved that problem that I had when I was on the mountain where I looked like the Michelin man and I was super puffy. Yeah. Uh, because every insulation that's ever existed in apparel or accessories or, you know, all that stuff uses loft to work, um, requires bulk and space, right? Like take goose down goes down works because it traps a bunch of air in between the feathers, right? And the problem is if you compress that down, you lose all that airspace and you lose the ability to stay warm. So there's this dependency on space or airspace or volume uh, in order to keep yourself warm uh, when you're in any of these environments. That is not true with aerogel and thereby solar core because it works via prevention of conduction. When you compress solar core, uh, 15 PSI, good amount of pressure, maintains 97% of its thermal performance. Or said another way, for the first time in history, you don't need a big bulky insulation to stay warm. You can have a thin piece of insulation, put it in a garment, uh, and stay incredibly, incredibly warm or Super simply, no more Michelin man, uh, which is awesome. No, that's awesome. That's great. I think we've all been there with with being Michelin man um, when it comes to um, outdoor uh, weather. How do you even conduct when you're testing um, your product against others? How do you even conduct how um, how insulated um, it is versus others? Yeah, awesome question. If our chief technology officer Jeff Nash were on the call right now. He would be bringing up uh, a slide deck, walking through all of, you know all the different methods that we use. Uh, and Jeff's phenomenal. Jeff before Oros was uh, on the leadership team at Black Diamond, and before that led um, the North Face's innovation and materials teams. Um, awesome dude. But breaking it down the most simple form, there 
on the material itself, there are standard test methods that we use called ASTM that everybody else uses uh, to test either thermal conductivity or thermal insulation or, or all that. And that just provides like a raw scientific value that, you know, you can use on every other material and, and really run like some awesome science experiments. But ultimately it's about like what the user and the consumer feels and wears, right? So we also do human trials or human testing or, or wear testing uh, uh, with our consumer base uh, before we release a product to market. Yeah, no, got it. Certainly I can understand the need. I don't think anyone enjoys looking like Michelin Man. And I think that as well as space, you know, it's of course much easier not to have to store a big bulky jacket, right? And especially when you're like transporting, I'm thinking about all the times I went skiing or or what have you, or or going to, to to cold climate. It's never fun transporting, you know, all of like the ski gear. Walk me through the launch and maybe how you had to convince consumers that this was better than your big puffy jacket. Because as a consumer, I'd be like, whoa, like that sounds crazy to me. So what was your maybe thought process of walking through like a consumer of why why Oros was like a great bet? So by our senior years of college, we had solar core. We had this flexible aerogel composite. At that point, we had to make a jacket. And Rith and I, two science geeks, don't know anything about you know, how to make apparel. We wore it. We were both outdoor enthusiasts. But so we basically asked a bunch of like really hardcore con- uh, consumers in different areas. Like, what do you want in a jacket? Um, got all the, the functionality and hired a desire contractually to like design this jacket. And the jacket itself. Uh, oh, and then we, we had to find someone to actually prototype it. So we um, it was through that experience we learned like, hey, no factory wants to work with a college student. So we changed our email addresses. That's actually when we filed incorporation. So we could say, you know, on behalf of our company, uh, and so uh, we got someone to, to manufacture our first prototypes. And um, the jacket itself, like candidly, was pretty ugly, but it worked. Like it had the functionality we needed and all that stuff. And the problem was we didn't have any money. Like, you know, we were totally broke, like spent all of our money, like making the solar core thing. And so we needed, the problem is with, you know, apparel and I'm sure a bunch of other product categories, these manufacturers work with MOQs or minimum order quantities where, you know, you can't just order five or six jackets. You've got to order whatever their MOQ is. And turned out with the current fed we were working with, it was like a thousand units. And each, each jacket, I think costs like a hundred bucks FOB or basically get it and store it over here in the US. So you do the math on that. We needed $100,000 to get our first, you know, batch of product over from over uh, from where our manufacturer was based. So we're like, uh, oh my gosh, like how are we going to, you know, get $100,000? We don't have that money. Two kids from the Midwest. So we, we ended up running a, a Kickstarter campaign to launch the company back in 2015 and uh, put this awesome video together, I launched it on Kickstarter and, um, was very fortunate in the first like 36 hours at like 125 grand, like more money than two kids from the Midwest have seen before uh, in our lives, close to like 300 something. Um, and, and, and that was the start of Oros. Uh, that's amazing. And I'm, um, you know, <laughs> that's amazing raising that money in such a short span as well. And I'd imagine too, 
obviously not just the money, but um, which is obviously critical to launching your business. But imagine what's also super helpful about the Kickstarter campaign is that then you actually have customers that you actually can, that actually can maybe prototype or you can kind of get feedback and as well as validate it. I mean, if you're raising that kind of money in like the first 36 hours, it's also must be quite validating for you because then like there was a sense of a real need for this. Absolutely. You know, um, there were a couple of things. One is my favorite thing is when we get an email or a message, you know, someone orders something through our site and customer service will say, Hey, I just wanted you to know one of our clients or customers that just bought today uh, was also a Kickstarter customer back on day one. And that's always cool to see like, Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. And then, you know, I think the other thing is uh, to your point, like Kickstarter provides validation. Like there's actually this need. Now it is a very different market than, you know, setting up a website and that, so that that needs to be accounted for, for sure. But a lot of people do Kickstarter to get that validation and then pitch VCs. Ruth and I did that Kickstarter because uh, to, to show our parents like, hey, going to go do an Oros was a better thing than going to med school. What was the next steps? Obviously, then you went to, you went in and ordered the product and were able to, but what were kind of the next steps after that? Yeah. Uh, so at that point, we raised our first financing round, started building up our team, uh, you know, obviously turned our, our website on, started expanding our product line and all those things. In the background, in the ether, you know, like Ruth and I knew that our aspirations were much bigger, right? Like if Ruth and I were just building another apparel brand, we we wouldn't be as interested in what we're doing, right? Like we're not apparel guys by nature. We're, we're, we're scientists. Like we're building, at the end of the day, we knew we were building a material technology company. And we knew that our, our mission was to uh, empower the future of human exploration and to transform this, this market of uh, thermal apparel uh, that's been integrated for a long time. And so our from a product perspective, what we wanted to do was was bigger. We didn't just want to make, you know, the thinner or warmer outerwear like we make with SolarCore. Essentially, with SolarCore, we give you a less bulky jacket that keeps you warmer. Uh, but what we wanted to do is we wanted to make uh, a, a technology that would allow a consumer to wear a long sleeve shirt that could keep you warm sub freezing. And to do that, you've got to make a, a really, really, really warm fiber. Uh, uh, and I'll leave it at this as we've been building the brand over the last couple of years in the background, uh, we built up a phenomenal R and D team and have partnered with the department of defense on working on creating this fiber. Uh, and it comes to the world in early 2022. Uh, so we are so excited. And that was the next, one of the next big steps in achieving the vision of what Riff and I wanted to. Wanted to also understand, um, when did you decide to first fundraise like an institutional round from either um, angel investors or also uh, venture capitalists? And I'd imagine, as we talked about, you obviously have really big ambitions. Venture financing was inevitable. But what were some of the ways that you were actually able to fundraise? Yeah. So we raised our first round, um, maybe like a year or two after college. Um, this was our seed round. It was two million bucks. And Rith and I didn't know anything about venture capital. Like our degrees were science-based degrees. Like we thought we'd be, you know, at that point in med school. So like we, we didn't know much about raising capital. Um, and so we 
we learned the hard way that VCs don't respond to cold calls uh, or cold emails. That was a that was a learning experience. But what what we did is we assembled a roadshow uh, across the U.S. where we where we in every city organized like four or five meetings with different VCs or angels or angel groups and. Uh, traveled across the U.S. and, and met with them. And that was uh, an incredible experience and a big learning experience and um, ended up raising, that was the first round, ended up raising about $2 million from some really incredible uh, institutional venture firms, which uh, one of which is is um, with us today and, um, and uh, still a phenomenal partner. So That's great. That's great. Did you experience any maybe like challenges along the way when you were, um, raising from venture funds. And um, yeah, we'd just love to kind of hear that as well if you happen to have any stories. Oh, totally. Um, we just closed our Series A. Our Series A was like $14.5 million, uh, and brought in some phenomenal VCs. We had a small round in between uh, those two, super tiny. And we, we pitched this VC and got a term sheet. And for those that that don't know, you know, a term sheet is just the, the the structure of the deal. Hey, yeah, it's a convertible note. We'll do this. Or if it's a price round, hey, this is the pre money. We'll invest this much. This is the round size. All the, you know, all those details. And at the bottom of the term sheet, there's a no shop clause where, you know, you don't have the ability to go shop the deal, uh, or or or, and it's a fair protection. It basically means that you know the the company can't once they get a term sheet tell someone else, hey, I've got this other term sheet at this price. Can you beat it? You know, uh, makes sense. So we were we were happy with the term sheet, signed this term sheet, and uh, 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 thought like, oh, okay, cool. Like we'll you know rally around this and all that. And a month went by, normally about like the diligence period, sometimes a little less, and you know, we weren't making the progress uh, that we needed to on this round. Like they, we, we just weren't progressing with them two months, three months. And at this point, like we're pretty low on cash uh, and runway. I remember like three months in this group goes, so uh, sorry, we're not going to, we're not going to do the deal. It just dropped it on us. And I was like, oh, sh-. namely because um, at that point we only had a couple weeks of runway. We didn't have a lot of time to resurrect this round uh, and get together the capital we needed. So I was, I was pretty devastated. And then not three hours later from that phone call, a car decided to skyrocket off the highway straight into Oro's offices, uh, and just trash, uh, uh, the entire office. Uh, it was one of the it was one of the most challenging four or five hour periods of, of my experience with Oros. Uh, we got this devastating news after being dragged along for three months. And then this car just trashed the entire, entire office, destroyed it. And I had a meeting with one of my advisors and mentors like the following morning. And uh, he and I talked and we put together this plan. We, we organized a whole road show and like a 24 hour period. And met with, you know, uh, thanks to a lot of help to that advisor and into some of all of our investors at the time that started making phone calls, uh, put together an entire roadshow, uh, met with all these VCs, got a term sheet, actually a better term sheet than what we had prior, uh, and ended up closing the round in like a, in a couple week period. Uh, and it was a phenomenal, uh, 
phenomenal turn of events. But yeah, we, we absolutely had challenges in the race. That's awesome. That's awesome. So how did you, once you got off the ground, you started selling on your website and developed your website. What was your approach to, to growth? After the Kickstarter, you know, we didn't know what the world would think about Oro's product. We had validation from Kickstarter, but we didn't know if what we saw on Kickstarter translated to like the real world. It's just, it's, it's just, it was a different world. And so we turned on our website and it was really uh, a, a big test. One of the core philosophies and values that we have at Oros, and it relates to your question of how we approach growth, is, is have grit. And that's like every company value, every company has like that value, whether it's have grit or perseverance or you know, something like that. Uh, but for us, it's a little different. And we believe that we as humans are very afraid of failure. It's like this innate feeling like that we have. And that's that's fine. But but we believe in sciencing the shit out of everything you do. Uh, and if you believe in that mentality, and if you believe in having grit, then that means you view things, uh, especially at Oros, as a science experiment. You have a hypothesis. You test that hypothesis. And either it's right or it's wrong. If it's wrong... We as humans view that as failure. We get downtrodden, like, oh my gosh, like this, you know, this thing will never work or whatever. Um, but at Oros, if you have grit and if you believe in science and the shit, everything you do, that failure is a, a learning lesson that you can reapply to your hypothesis, modify accordingly, and try again. And so our approach at Oros, and, and, and especially whether it's like digital marketing, for example, uh, uh, or, or growth hacking or whatever you want to call it um, is, is all about science experiments. So it started off as a big test. You know, do we have consumers that want it? Launched on Kickstarter, found out yes. Got the money we needed to buy the inventory. Then we moved uh, onto our website and said, well, you know, Kickstarter is an isolated community for the most part. Like, what about the real world? Is the real world going to want this? Ended up generating success, um, uh, hitting a, a good amount of revenue in year one. Uh, and they were like, oh, okay, well, we sold really well three months out of the year because we're selling this product that's like a tank of a jacket. We'll keep you warm. Sub-freezing is very thin, but you know, it's all about warmth. So maybe we should probably, or learning from this or failures, we should start diversifying our product uh, uh, and having you know sportswear, accessories, and, and other things. So then we expanded our product. But now we're still seasonal. Like we're, you know, we're we're a three season company. We haven't addressed summer yet, but uh, that was the next step. Then we did that and said, well, you know, we could probably work on our designs. And so we we moved the company to Portland, Oregon, which is the technical apparel com- uh, headquarters of the world. You got uh, some incredible companies here in the space, whether Nike or uh, Adidas North American headquarters under Armour as a campus out here. Uh, built up a phenomenal product team, got the design store that needed to be. And, and, and so it's, it's a constant learning experience. It's a constant science experiment. And we're constantly sciencing the shit out of everything that we can do to improve the company. I love that because as you say, like if you think about it in a scientific way, whatever you do, there is no failure. Because when you have a hypothesis and then you run the experiment, and even if that hypothesis, even if it doesn't hold true, then you've still learned that that hypothesis hasn't run true and that and you've learned what the right answer is then, right? That's really, really cool. And uh, I think that's a great also kind of outlook to look at, you know, entrepreneurship or starting anything. 
I, one caveat, I do think that there is failure, but I think failure is a lack of taking those small failures along the way. Like if we get so afraid that we start stagnating and, and, and being afraid to take those risks and run those science experiments, there's going to be a big failure at the end of the road. And it, the big failure for us was letting that fear overcome us, right? Our biggest value, the value I care most about is take the moonshot. Uh, I want people who who aren't afraid to take that leap. And so how do you find those people? What's your approach to hiring? Um, how do you kind of find those people that take the moonshot? And maybe how do you just make decisions along those lines? We, we generally have three to four interviews. The first interview will be by the head of the department. So like if we're hiring someone in marketing, it'll be our VP of marketing. Hiring someone in product will be our VP of product. Someone in tech, it'll be our chief technology officer. And, and that's normally just a pure technical interview, you know, they're going to know way better than I'll know about, you know, is this person qualified for the job, hard skills, stuff like that. I then like to do some outside assistance. So whether it's a, a, a you know, an investor or board member that knows a lot about the area or just some advisor or mentor, I've always found that that's, that's very helpful to get their opinion. They're a little more removed. And so I think it provides a slightly different opinion, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And then the third interview uh, should we get there is, is normally 100% a culture interview. And we've crafted 24 questions that all get back to the ethos of, you know, what we're trying to create and, and not just from a product perspective or a brand perspective, but a, a company culture perspective. And they all, they're seemingly irrelevant questions, but all get back to the core values of the company. And you know, the, the ethos of what we're trying to create. During the, the, these times of COVID, how do you, it must be really tricky to build culture, especially as a growing, fast-scaling company. How did you approach these past 18 months or so? Yeah, so we've been virtual digital as a team uh, the past 18 months, and, and, and that does present, you know, challenges. Being in person is a lot easier to, you know, build culture and communicate, I feel. There's just, there's something intangible about in-person that's very hard to replace virtual. And so that has absolutely been a challenge. And, you know, I don't think we did perfect, nor do I think that we we have the perfect answer quite yet. Um, and I'm not sure if anyone does. Um, uh, but I think, you know, agility and flexibility to this new environment is going to be um, incredibly important. And I think everyone has a slightly different approach, whether it's, you know, uh, three days from home, two days in office, or, hey, fully remote forever. So I think everyone is currently running a science experiment on what the best method is uh, in this new uh, COVID environment. No, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, there's no one right answer in, in terms of how to do it. How did you also approach the brand to Oros and maybe also, you know, after the Kickstarter campaign and you had those initial customers, like what were your vision in terms of maybe who the initial target like customer segment would be for Oros? Obviously that's going to expand, but what was kind of like the wedge that you saw when it came to the customer? And this might not have been the right route, but we, we looked at, we looked internally. So like Ruth and I started this company because we saw this problem and addressed it. And, and then we looked at the Kickstarter base of who was initially buying our products and we saw very similar people. And, and what we saw was, you know, a modern urbanite, 
uh, very different than like, you know, uh, the North Face when they started out with climbing or Burton with snowboards. It was very, you know, or Black Diamond is an awesome example, like super hardcore. Like they're very hardcore outdoor athletes is where a majority of these companies started. And, 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 and like Ruth and I were outdoor enthusiasts, but like, you know, we were, we were modern urbanites. That was us. And so, uh, and we saw that same thing with our, with our Kickstarter base. And so unlike a lot of these other companies that got started with, you know, very niche uh, markets, we said, no, that's, that's not us. We're modern urbanites. We're mid twenties to mid thirties. Uh, live in an urban environment, spend our times on the weekends outside doing a variety of different activities. Our consumer base has since expanded, you know, to mid fifties, which has been awesome. But uh, that was the ethos of who our consumer is and, and, and is our target consumer uh, still today. I know that that this is kind of always in the back of your head. What maybe is like the ultimate or one of the ultimate products that that Oreos sells? Um, how are you able to get? the IP license, since it's licensed IP from NASA, first of all, how are you able to develop that relationship? And as well as the Department of Defense, that's, that's, a, that's incredible. And also, like, are, do you ever get worried that NASA might license this IP to an, another company as well? We've been very fortunate. Us and our R&D partners have um, exclusive license on, on the underlying IP, so no one, no one else can use it, which is great. And one of the cool things um, on the DOD side, we didn't know much there. We, we built a small advisory board with really incredible people, Colonel John Berger and others that uh, have tons of experience in the, the defense industry that were able to guide us, hired a couple of great firms uh, to help us get in. And the DOD in the short term presented non-dilutive R&D opportunities to really finance a lot of the initial pilot plant slash um, early stage production of this tech. and. Um, eventually long-term procurement for a variety of different applications uh, that we're super excited about and really providing some great benefits that we see for next-generation defense. So that was kind of our approach to DOD. With DOD, the other cool thing is, and this is also an awesome story for the brand, is we're actually manufacturing this technology entirely in the United States, all the way from fiber to garment. What that really does is it allows us, one, it's an awesome story, but two, it really cuts down on carbon emissions. Like one of the biggest problems with, with fashion and apparel is you have this complex international supply chain where, you know, your trims are made in uh, Taiwan and, and then shipped to your, your vendor that's manufacturing or garment in Vietnam and then shipped over to the U.S. where it's stored in a distribution center and then shipped to your end consumer. And, and, and carbon emissions is one of the massive, massive challenges uh, of, of sustainability for this market. And having such a localized, isolated supply chain, you know, we ship from Boston to, to our, our vendor is for the, the garment and then ship to our distribution in, in Indiana. And it, it's very isolated and much less carbon emissions than otherwise. And so that's super cool. And then also, we are utilizing a, a methodology of making product where we go straight from fiber to garment. Normally, you know, you, you have this traditional cut and sew process where you've got a swatch of fabric, a bolt of fabric, whatever you want to call it. And imagine like a cookie cutter in cookie dough. You cut the fabric patterns as you need to make the garment. But just like with that cookie dough, right, there's parts that aren't in that cookie cutter. There's parts that are quote unquote waste. 
Uh, and unlike a cookie dough, you can't just put all that waste together and do more cookie cuts, right? It's waste. Uh, generally, 20% of fabric waste with traditional cut and sew. Uh, we're able to significantly reduce that. Since we're not patterning, going straight from fiber to garment, we're able to significantly reduce uh, 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 the wastage that's involved in actually making garments. Uh, uh, and so that's super cool. So in addition to like the, the thermal properties and the idea of having a long sleeve shirt that can keep you warm, some freezing, as well as imagine like the socks that we can make with that. It's pretty cool. Uh, and gloves and, and, and a bunch of other products. There's this incredible sustainability opportunity that, that we have. That's, that's really important for us as well. And, um, again, our approach to sustainability, gets back to like science and tech and science the shit of everything we do. And uh, there's some really cool things that we're really proud of that will come out. Uh, in January on sustainability as well. That's amazing. I can't believe you have your full supply chain in the United States. I mean, that's just like, that's quite remarkable. There's not many companies that do. Do you ever get nervous as you scale that you won't be able to maybe compete on price or is that not really so much a worry? The beauty of the process with the garment manufacturing and there's virtually, it, it's almost all automated. There's very little human capital needed, which is also a cool sustainability. But the point is, I do think there's opportunity for scale with the specific methodology that we're using to manufacture the garments. We will be, our product margins will be high 60s on this product when we launch. We want to be mid 70s. Um, and so I think with opportunities of scale, there's ways to get there in the US. But I, you know, I, I don't think it's the easiest thing in the world either. So we see a path um, and, and believe there's opportunity to scale to get to where we want to be from a product market perspective. Got it. That's helpful. Since obviously, and I really appreciate you going into how you're sustainable and, and maybe your thoughts on sustainability. I think in the broader context, it seems like there's so many brands that label themselves as sustainable, but sometimes I don't quite know what that means. Um, since I know this is something you care about more so on the consumer side, you as a consumer, how do you approach when you're making your decision shopping of what brands maybe are sustainable or not, or how do you evaluate them? Because I know this is obviously one of your your passion areas. It's a challenging thing to do, uh, namely because there's so many ways to approach sustainability whether it's materials or manufacturing or packaging or transportation or, you know, there's tons of ways to, or end of life or durability, you know, there's, there's tons of ways to get to sustainability or to get more sustainable. And so I think with all the areas of opportunities, it's an easy thing to label and say, I think it's a hard thing to do holistically. I think it's something that in the outdoor space is taken very seriously and that a lot of companies are working towards some are further than others. I think fast fashion is catching up, but not as, not as far along as, as the outdoor industry per se. But I do think it is a hard thing for a consumer to, you know, see through and really understand uh, uh, how sustainable a product actually is. Um, and so I think that transparency is key and it's, it's tough. It reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, Steven Sashin, who's the founder of Zero Shoes. And what he was saying, because um, just like you, he's also very passionate about uh, sustainability. He says it's really difficult because you could have companies that are really trying to do right, be sustainable, um, you know, that's very, very much in their ethos, but they actually might be a net carbon negative rather than a net carbon positive. And as a consumer, it's really hard to distinguish what that actually is 
versus not. So I always just find it, um, I think it's quite difficult since there's so much kind of the buzzword sustainability out there. I, I do think that it's still though very difficult for the consumer to really understand what that means and the brands that actually are able to execute that, which is very difficult to do. I mean, and I appreciate you walking us a little bit about your supply chain, how you think. It's very, very difficult to do and knowing, you know, kind of have that transparency in the market. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Professionally, one of my favorite books that I've read is Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things. That was incredible for me. A couple of years into the Oros journey, I think because of being in the midst of it, I appreciated that book a lot more. A lot of people try to give you a playbook for how, how this thing works, right? And like, hey, if you just do A and B and add in a little C, you'll, you know, you'll get the result you want. The hard thing about hard things that a really good job of saying, hey, there is no secret sauce. There is no secret formula. Uh, but here are some of the lessons I've learned along the way. And that, that was super cool. And uh, that authenticity meant a lot to me. Um, and those lessons were really powerful. So professionally, I really, I really like that one. Personally, I'm a huge Ernest Hemingway fan. Like I love adventure. I love travel. I love outdoors. And I think reading Ernest Hemingway a lot, like I don't know which influenced which. I don't know if I read Ernest Hemingway because I like adventure and travel and outdoors or if I like adventure and outdoor travel indoors because I read a lot of Ernest Hemingway. But one of the two ways I love Ernest Hemingway, his prose is simple too, which is cool. So that's that's probably personally what I would say. That's awesome. That's that, that's great. Um, I think you're the first person to mention Ernest, so really happy about that because he's extraordinary. One of my one of my cousins actually. What's what's the book called that is all about Spain? Is that uh, where the sun rises? Well, where the sun also rises. That's right. Where the sun also rises. So so my cousin after he graduated from college. Um, this is long ago, about like twenty years twenty years ago or so. He wanted to travel Europe. Huge, also Ernest Hemingway fan. Read that book and decided just to go to Spain and do everything that Ernest Hemingway did. Like in that book, he did like the whole trip of it because he's like, I I've never been to Europe. I could try to like pickpocket and go to like a couple of cities here and there, but maybe just to focus all my energy on Spain and what and what Ernest did. So he loved it. He had a great time. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? I was out to dinner with an investor, and this was the first time I've met this man in person. Um, uh, he invested in us before he ever met us, and this is pre-COVID, but like before that was common, right? Like now in COVID, like uh, it's a whole new world. But this is pre-COVID. And we're out at dinner with him. And this guy is incredible. He's older now, but he he's a titan uh, in his industry. And we were sitting down at dinner and in the middle of dinner, gave me unsolicited advice. And it's some of the best advice that I've ever gotten. And he said, don't ever ask for favors. Always ask for advice because everybody loves giving advice. Very few people like doing favors. And there is something beautiful in the simplicity of what he said. And it's so true. Uh, You ever want to get connected to somebody? Ask for their advice. You ever need a favor from somebody? Ask for their advice. Uh, I I think there's a really valuable lesson. I love that. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders as my last question? This might be cheesy, but I I go back to the core value at Oros, right? The, the, The biggest of them all. 
take the moonshot, right? Like you're going to have great days. You're going to have awful days. You're going to have amazing experiences. You're going to have terrible experiences. Not every startup company is successful. That's for sure. But Rith and I would have had a very different path in life if we didn't, if we didn't take the moonshot and, and take the giant leap to be on this journey. And so that would be the, uh, the advice I have for founders is take the moonshot. I like that. I like also how you phrased it, take the moonshot. It's great because it obviously implies, you know, just the massive step that you actually uh, need to take. And that isn't minor. Michael, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Michael. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hold up. 